Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 82nd episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is Understanding Today's Changing Customers. I'm joined by David Averin. He is the author of Why Customers Leave and How to Win Them Back. The publisher is Career Press. David is an immensely popular speaker and consultant on the customer experience as well as on marketing. He is a former CEO, group leader, and speaker for Vistage International. He's written actually four books. We're going to cover one of those today. But in addition, he's the author of It's Not Who You Know, It's Who Knows You, Visibility Marketing, and his latest book, The Morning Huddle. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, absolutely. I know we're going to have a lot of fun and we're going to impart some meaning here because I think you're good at that. So we're going to focus mostly on why the customers leave. Sure. Uh, Can you give me a brief overview of the book just to help out listeners? Yeah, I I think the book is the book is a bit of a rant. You know, when I when I wrote why customers leave and how to win them back, I was coming off a uh, almost 20 year career in marketing. And I sort of came to the recognition that that what we say about ourselves, while certainly important, is, is less meaningful and impactful today than what other people say about us. And we were seeing a big shift in the marketplace, a big shift from the, uh, you know, us talking about our quality and commitment and caring and trust in people uh, to recognizing what customers were looking for, which was speed and flexibility and accommodation and convenience. Uh, my, my colleague, Sally, my colleague Sally Hogshead talks about um, fascination, and she says today different is better than better. And my my modification is that today faster is better than better, convenient is better than better. And so that's what sort of led to the research that led to the book Why Customers Leave and How to Win Them Back. And now we're in six languages around the world. Um, and what we came to recognize is there's certain things that organizations, companies big and small, do to create some level of predictability in the customer's journey, the customer's path. But in doing so, pardon my language, they piss off their customers. (laughs) We we just get so frustrated and everybody does. And as I was writing it, I was wondering, is this just me? And what I came to find out is is people, I I got a lot of great feedback after the book came out saying, I, I found myself nodding. Oh, I hate that. Oh, I hate when they do that. You know, you get examples like when, you take the customer who buys from you. And of course, the greatest predictability of future behavior is past behavior. So if they buy from you, they're most, most likely to buy from you again. So immediately we inundate them with surveys and advertising. You buy anything from overstock.com, you're going to get four emails a day. So let's really frustrate our most you know profitable customers. And there's things that we do uh, as, as business owners just to try and have some level of, of control over what it is we do, because we can't control the market. We can't control pandemics. We can't control technology. So we try to create this customer journey, right? Here's how 
they're going to learn about us. And here's how they can um, research us and reach out and contact us and communicate and buy and select and customize and deliver and install or whatever your business model is. And it works, right? And if the whole customer journey works, and if it doesn't, we tweak it until it works and it's profitable. Because we can, if we can have a greater level of predictability of our customers' behavior and purchasing and revenue and cash flow, then we can we can plan for that, right? We can budget for that. We can hire for that. Here's the problem. The problem is your customers haven't read your employee manual. They don't know how they're supposed to do business. They just know how they want to do business. And so the, the purpose of the book was to, to outline for business owners and entrepreneurs and others, here's behaviors that are common, that are counterproductive in terms of you building loyalty and building, um, and, and building sales because they work for you, but they don't work for your customers. Um, yeah. In fact, I just bought something from Nordstrom's. And it was a wonderful customer service experience until I suddenly get, started getting spam left and right, unsubscribed, and still get like four pieces of spam a day. Uh, so I do not feel like I'm in control of that relationship, I can tell you. So in the most wonderful way, uh, this book is indeed a rant. Uh, I'm curious, you said you, you expected that business owners and managers, uh, there's a lot of things here that we're going to piss them off, pardon my French, as to what you're honestly saying in this book. Uh, any guess as to what is most likely to piss them off the most from what you offer up? Um, you know, I, I think the, the thing that's probably the most universal is the amount of times we hear no or some yeah. should have no, and just, it's, you know, we can't or no, you can't. And especially if it's something where we know they can, we know they can say yes, um, but they just choose to. I mean, if a young woman's with her friends at a restaurant and she orders a chicken Caesar salad and she says, can I get shrimp instead of chicken? Because I see shrimp on the menu somewhere, right? And they say, oh, I'm so sorry. No, no menu substitutions. Why? You know why? Because they don't want to figure it out because the, the cook doesn't want to do it. You know who doesn't care what the cook wants to do? Everybody. I mean, it's, it's a different protein. Just throw it on there and charge her a few extra bucks. She'll be thrilled. But instead we say no, because what we get back is the same argument. Oh, I'm so sick of this one. And they say, well, if we do it for her, we got to do it for everybody. No, you don't. You don't. It's so lazy because most people don't want a special accommodation, which makes it very easy for us to say yes to the people who do. But we just because we want a level of predictability. So what's the alternative? Now she doesn't come back because she thought what she was okay. She didn't get what she wanted or worse yet. And Dan, here's why this is more important than ever. The ramifications for underperformance today are profound because people don't just go and complain to their friends. They go online and they complain to everyone. We grew up in business and everybody, if you're in business, you heard some version of this and everybody's heard it before. The average person, we used to call it guest relations philosophy, right? The average person with a positive experience will tell two or three people, but somebody with a negative experience will tell 10, right? Or some version. We've all heard that before. None of that is true today. Today, we tell thousands. Yeah. Today, we tell yeah. millions. It's Yelp and TripAdvisor and Rotten Tomatoes and Glassdoor. The, we have to sit back um, and reconsider. We're, we're entering an age that will require require an extraordinary level of accommodation. We have to rethink the things that we said no to. It doesn't mean that the customer's always right. It doesn't mean we interrupt a major manufacturing process for a one-off. We don't do things that are, that are wildly un unprofitable, but we have to start being much more flexible. I was leaving a, a hotel, it was like seven o'clock in the morning, going to speak to a CEO roundtable group. 
And I walked by the front desk and I said, uh, I'm in room 227. I need to do a late checkout, please. And the young woman, very nice. She says, oh, I'm so sorry, sir. We're not doing any late checkouts. <clears throat> and I said, uh, yikes, I'm leaving right now. Uh, and I speak till noon. And she says, yeah, we have a big conference coming in. And we were told that we're not doing any late checkouts. Uh, and I said, well, I literally, I can't leave right now. I get done at noon, but I'll be back by 1220. I'll be out the door by 1230. She goes, yeah, I'm so sorry, sir. If you can't be out by noon, we're going to have to charge you for a second day. Now understand, I teach this. And so I paused and I looked at her and I said, okay, if you're going to charge me for a second day, I'll go ahead and pay the second day and I just won't check out. I'll just keep the room. Yeah. Because if I, if, I, if I have to pay for it, I'll just keep I'm the room. I'm going to keep it, yeah. Right. But now you don't have a room for that opportunity. <laughs> Is that the outcome you were looking for? And she's like, uh, runs to the back room, comes back. Um, one o'clock would be fine. Of, of course it would. Now, here, But here's the question, Dan. Did she want to say yes to me? Of course she did. Somebody was lazy in the back room and said, just, oh, yeah, no late checkouts. Because it makes it easy for them. Not everybody wants a late checkout. They're not going to clean every room. But it's so indicative of the patterns that we fall into. So to answer your question, what's the most universally frustrating is where they say no when we know they could say yes. It's just easy. I mean, you're going to be a hero. The problem is we don't empower our workers, our employees. We go through a very extensive hiring process, right? We look them up online. We give them really tough questions. Tell me about a situation where things didn't go well for you. How did you handle that, right? And then... We hire them and we neuter them, right? Now just do it this way. Yeah, <laughs> It's so scary to let people make a decision because they might make a wrong decision, right? But we also preclude them from making really good decisions and doing things where we can, we can please them. And, and the magic phrase, here's the magic phrase for Dan and, and your listeners. Even when we have to say no, sometimes we have to say no. If, if you have a vegan restaurant, somebody wants a buffalo burger, sorry, dude, that's a hard no, right? But here's the magic phrase. Even when you have to say no, let me tell you what I can do. Right? Yeah, and yeah. Do something to try and accommodate. Find an alternative. Just that alone, um, I think, disarms people who are already kind of worked up. And we already see a level of, of anger and frustration that people are taking out that we've never really seen before. We have to work with our people. Find ways to say yes. And if we have to say no, we offer an alternative. That's my strategy as I consult, as I speak as well. Let me tell you what I can do. Or, yeah, no, I, I like that a lot. You, you may know the story that when John Lennon and Yoko Ono met, uh, it was an art exhibit in London, and you had to climb a ladder, and there was one word that you could read once you climbed the ladder, and, and it was attached to the ceiling. So John climbs the ladder, and the word is yes. And later on, he confesses to Yoko, if the word had been no, uh, I would say no to you <laughs> in terms of a potential relationship. So sure. yes, I think that's a really powerful word. So you you mentioned the internet and getting outed on the internet, and you mentioned some things like TripAdvisor. So I got a series of questions here sure. related to that. Actually, uh, well, I'll start with you. You are indeed a consultant to leaders. How much time, in your experience, do they actually spend ever looking at some of these things on the internet so they can get firsthand the voice of the customer? you know, that they impart themselves rather than get it through the filter of their, their researchers and customer service departments. Right. Well, I, I think you hit it on the head, which is, I, I think this is a real priority for organizations. I think they're trying to figure out why they have churn, why they're losing customers. Um, but what they don't recognize is that the, the most significant uh, source of lost revenue in their business is the customer they never knew about, right? Yeah. They, they drove yep. by and they didn't stop. 
where they came in and they left without being engaged or they they called on the phone and they didn't want to deal with your voicemail system or the worst is you got them to your website. I mean, they're literally on your website <clears throat> and they click away and they click away without buying anything, without leaving their information. And so organizations work really hard to try and ascertain what are those reasons, especially if they're frustrated. They try and very quickly um, mitigate any kind of problems so that they don't go online and, and complain about them. And I get this like when I'm traveling and I rent when I'm not doing an Uber, I'll rent from Enterprise. And when I show up back at Enterprise, um, they say the same thing, thing to me every time, right? How was the how was the Camry, Mr. Averin? Fine. Everything okay? Did you have a chance to fill it up? Um, and then they'd say, is there anything we could have done to have made this a more outstanding experience? And what they're saying is, please, Dodd, please, God, don't go on TripAdvisor. <laughs> please let me fix it now, right? I saw at a yes. restaurant, there was a sign on the table that said, if, if something isn't right, don't tell Yelp, tell us. And so what organizations are doing is, um, unfortunately, is they're very quickly over surveying. And everybody agrees, We get you buy something and you immediately get, please fill out the survey, tell us how things work. One is they want to head off problems so you don't report it online, um, but they want that data. The problem is, is they automate the process. And then when we don't respond, because most people don't respond to surveys, we get a reminder that says, you please remember to fill out the survey. And then three days later, you forgot. No, we didn't forget. We just didn't want to do it. And you know what? My experience was fine, but now I'm frustrated because you are stalking me and you are, you are overdoing that. So I think organizations do recognize the importance of data. I think they've been sold a bill of goods by the companies that collect data, um, that they can very efficiently automate the process, um, offload it. And, and what they've done is they, they frustrate their customers. And yeah, so no, my, yeah, no, my, my father was uh, executive at 3M and he said, you know, the problem was the higher I got up in the food chain, uh, the more the information that came to me was filtered. So yeah. I, I agree with you. There's a real risk that these companies will, will filter the data. So, do you, you know, do you think the, the CEOs, I mean, so often I think their mindset, unfortunately, is that customer service is a cost center and they're trying to reduce costs uh, and they're trying to please the shareholder and pleasing the shareholder, they don't get around to pleasing the customer who's the revenue source, of course. Do Have you found some that are really exemplary for, you know, listening in? And I say this in part because someone just told me the other day about a financial company where new employees, they, they changed this, they went away from it, unfortunately, but for a long time, what you had to do the first week on the job is you had to listen in to phone calls from the customer service center so you understood the voice of the customer and what their complaints were and their needs, and they became real for you. So I'm wondering if you have suggested these things, seen these things, some sectors or CEOs particularly well, good at taking that voice. Yeah. You know what? There, there's some of the obvious companies, and there's some smaller ones you, have, you haven't heard of. But, but I think the mindset and the process is even more important. I was in Bogota, Colombia, speaking for a big customer experience conference. And for them, customer experience means something different. It is how fast can we get them off the phone? How well can we, how, <laughs> how can we automate it? So all of the vendors sure. at this big international conference in Colombia were like call center headsets and, and automated AI. And how can we offload? I mean, AI, of course, is just um, these chat bots. It's just an, an automated FAQ, right? Where we're all in there and it's like, whether we're doing it on the keyboard or we're in, in the phone. And I know you talk about this in your book and we're like, real person, real person, real person. <laughs> I, I've learned with the cable company when they say, please say in a few short words, 
All you have to do is say cancel service. Boom. You immediately get a real person who tries to uh, who tries to make sure that you don't leave. And I mean, it's just sort of a shortcut. But what we're seeing in organizations is is and this is historic as well, is a lot of time and effort and expense on the customer acquisition side. We send a lot of money on sales. Now, we all know the statistics, whether it's some version of it costs 10 times more to get a new customer client than to keep one. Yet, we spend all our money on the acquisition side, the sales, the account executives. And once they're a customer, if they're calling with a problem, they get customer service, which really isn't customer service, it's the complaint department. And their goal and their metrics are about how fast can we get them off the phone. And one of my favorite sayings is is saying, if you make it very difficult for your customers to complain to you, they will complain to others and they will complain online. If you make it difficult for your customers to talk to you, they will talk to your competitors. And yet we create processes and systems to try and offload because God forbid we should get the same question over and over again from the people who pay the bills and buy our products and services the, the problem is the voices in the ear of the CEOs and, and others within organizations are companies with a dog in the race, are companies who make money automating systems, companies that yeah. convince you that if you put a contact form on your website, all the, the, the questions will go to one person, one department, you can streamline it. Yet 86% of people will never, ever, ever, ever fill out a contact form. But they delude themselves into believing saying, our phone stopped ringing. Well, of course it stopped ringing because you won't put your phone number on your website. <laughs> yeah. And I ask audiences all the time, I said, you ever notice when you have a question, you have a question, I just have a simple question. And you go to a website, there is no phone number, like anywhere. That company made a conscious decision. We will not let our customers call us. Like how arrogant can you possibly be? Now, Facebook can get away with it because people want to stay with Facebook and they don't pay for it. Very few other customers or very few other companies can do that. And so what we're seeing is, is as you said, they sort of see it as a cost center. Um, they see it as a time waster. And the reality is it's not about doing more. It's about doing what you're already doing differently. It's about doing what you're already doing better and more responsibly. Um, but it's also an opportunity today. I think it's an opportunity to differentiate yourself in a competitive marketplace because most companies do this poorly. And I think we can do it better. And- yeah, no, well, one of ways they could differentiate themselves. In fact, I, you know, I ran for 20 plus years of market research firm that did work for more than half the world's top 100 yeah. B2C companies. I never got a single client who in the proposal, nor in the consulting advice from me before we set up the project and started running, had ever agreed. Not one time did they ever agree to go back and interview customers who had left the company. Oh, yeah. Not the, once. The exit interview. <laughs> right. Be, yeah. And first of all, it's difficult within an organization, right? The exit interview, um, you, you, you almost don't want to know, right? It's an uncomfortable conversation. Yeah. yeah. But I think it's, <coughs> excuse me, I think it's a more important conversation um, for the customer that you haven't heard from for a while, because there's clues. I have a whole chapter in my book, Why Customers Leave, about recognizing the clues of dissatisfaction. One of them is absence. Right. If they haven't bought from you for a while or even this, here's the hardest one. And when I used to do my CEO coaching as well, I'd say, how often do you take your best customers and ask them, why do you do business with us? And they don't because the fear is they're going to go, I don't know. (laughs) Murphy, put that out to bid. Right. It's like, don't rock the boat. Like if you you don't have any problems, that's a good sign. It isn't anymore. 
because there's no shortage of companies out there who want to take your long-term customer and convert them into their first-time customer. And so they, they bombard them with love and offers and discounts and everything else to steal them away. Don't be so arrogant that people are going to stay with you because they've always bought from you because there are always better alternatives. And those competitors um, that you dismiss, and I say you broadly, right, that, um, uh, that we think that, that people just have but to know that we exist or eventually those competitors will, will annoy them and they'll come running to us. It's just not true. Your competitors are great. And the worst part about it, most of your competitors are very, very, very nice people. And they work really hard just like you do. And they do what they say they're going to do just like you do, or they wouldn't be in business because today the internet outs underperformers. And so we can't be complacent that our customers are going to buy from us because they've always bought from us. So getting back to your point about getting that feedback from the customer, um, sometimes it's at the point of purchase. Sometimes the survey is not a bad thing as long as you don't do it over and over again. Um, incentivize, right? The behavior that's recognized and rewarded is the behavior that's repeated. Reward the people who do this if you fill out a survey. Um, create a, a, an advisory panel of your best customers and clients. We do have to have data, but we also need input from our front line, whatever your front line looks like in your business, because they're hearing the questions that they have to say no to. They're hearing the verbal expressions of exasperation, right? You know, part of your expertise, Dan, is that that, that physical manifestation of dissatisfaction and feelings and emotions, we can also do that from an audio perspective, whether it's on the phone, we can do it face to face. Yep. And the question is, do you have a process in place for those encounters to be passed up the chain of command? Do your leaders know what people are asking for that we don't provide? Do they know the things that, we're frust that are frustrating our customers that we don't really have an answer for so that they can make strategic uh, decisions based on that. One of the things in my new book, which is called The Morning Huddle, and the tagline is <clears throat> powerful customer experience conversations to wake you up, shake you up, and win more business, is all about putting conversation on the calendar. Let's crowdsource our own people. What are you hearing? What are you experiencing? What's the wisdom and, and ideas that are already locked in the minds of the brilliant people that you've hired? Yeah, and then give them a chance to actually be enacted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm afraid the suggestion box, you know, is right next to the trash can way too often as to what it's could be different around here. Right. It's like <laughs> no one knows who has the key, right? Because it was set up in 1978 in the break room. Um, but yeah, people wonder. And so involving the, the people that you already have, I, I like the whole idea of crowdsourcing. But one of the things that I do when I work with organizations, and I think they can do it themselves, is crowdsource your own organization. Ask those questions. Ask yeah. a question. Here's yeah. a good question, Dan. If you were going to leave your company today and you were going to start a competing company across town, you're fully funded, but you're not bound by any legacy policies or systems or leases or equipment or technology or even people, you could start from scratch. What would you do differently? If you were going to start, no matter who you are in your business, if you were going to start your business over today, what would you do differently? Because that's what- Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Is. It's what they can do, right? That's disruption. And so one of the exercises I love doing is having teams compete. Pretend you're competing against your company. How would you beat yourself? Because if you can figure that out in an hour long or a couple hour session, don't you think your competitors could figure that out? Maybe, <laughs> maybe it's just your process. Maybe it's just the simplicity 
with which people can buy from you or communicate with you or, or, or uh, uh, customize or something with you. It's better that we do that because disruption, of course, is somebody coming in and asking some fundamental questions. Is the way we do it the way it should be done? I mean, it's the way we do it. It's the way our competitors do it. But is there a unique way? Can we solve the problem differently? And then you get Uber and you get Airbnb and some other things as well. I mean, my God, can you imagine, Dan, graduating from medical school today as an orthodontist, like quarter million dollars in debt, and you turn on the TV and you see a commercial for Smile Direct Club? You don't even need to go to a, a dentist, an orthodontist. You just, they just send it to you. They're, they're literally panicking. This is happening to businesses everywhere. And so the voice of the customer, oftentimes the people who have the best idea of what the customers want and need and feel and are frustrated by are the people who deal with them every day. Right, the front lines. Yeah. Um, I have a whole video series called The Morning Huddle. It's just every week, a whole other question to sort of be the catalyst for that conversation. Great customer service isn't a keynote speech. It's an ongoing process within organizations. And the ones who are going to be around a year from now, two years from now, are the ones who are talking and listening and talking and vetting and enacting. Um, and this is all above and beyond being good at what you do. Well, I think we're talking about in part of the transition because there's two different terms in your book, customer service and customer experience. Yeah, different. And the second one allows a little bit more strategic thought one hopes at least. Uh, maybe you can define that briefly for us and just sure. talk about is, is one maybe more flawed than the other? Do we get enough uptake that the customer experience is done better perhaps? But I, I think they're related. I think customer service is incredibly important, but I think we get it. I mean, my God, we've been talking about it for 40 years. <laughs> Literally, you either do or you don't. If there's a piece of paper yeah. crumbled up on the floor, whose job is it to pick it up? Oh, it's everyone's. We know that. Come on. We know that we're supposed to smile and, and we've got all that. The experience is different. The experience, it's related, but it's literally as customers, we judge how was it to do business with you? Was it frustrating? Was it intuitive? Was it simple? When, when, when you and I were younger, we would go to the bank. We'd stand in line during banking hours, of course. We'd fill out a deposit slip. We'd go to the front. We'd deposit our check. Now I, I do a keynote speech. I take a picture of the check in the back of the Uber. I take a picture of it. I deposit. It's done. My daughter's at college. She sends me a text and needs money. I transfer it and, and it's done. Not one of those transactions involves somebody asking, so what are your plans for the weekend, right? That's customer service. 95% of our financial transactions now are mobile. They're digital and banks are scrambling because they've always thought their competitive advantage was the relationship, right? We, we know our customers by name. What happens when your customers don't come to the bank anymore? I rarely do, but the experience is still profound. Do I have to, when I put in my username and password, if I put my password in wrong, do I have to type in my username again, right? Frustrating. Hashtag first world problems, right? But a problem in the mind of your customer is a problem. So we're hearing now about UX, user experience, CX, customer experience, employee experience. What's it like to do business with you? Is it frustrating? Do we have to wait for what we want? So there's some really exciting things happening in the field right now. The things that are less exciting um, are the things that are the things where organizations push us to do their job. You go to a doctor's office now and, and instead of them entering the information, you have to do it also. The receptionist doesn't have to do it. I see. Let's give the, the iPad to the guy who's bleeding from the head. <laughs> yeah, let's I do make, find that very irritating. Yeah. Right. Let's, let's make us scan our own groceries or tag our own bags. I get, you know, I'm... 
it's it's not that it's so horrible, but it adds up, doesn't it? Um, yeah. It, it so, have- so one last question. Yeah, one yeah. last. I, I think maybe you're leaning toward immediacy, but I don't want to put words in your mouth because you said in the book there's three central themes, and one was immediacy, one was individuality, and the other one was humanity. Are those given in rank order of importance, or is actually the the last one the most important and it's the kicker? I mean, how, how would you yeah, see that? That's kind of the last question before we wrap up. Well, I think it's all the above, and I think one of the things that we've seen during COVID is that we've seen an acceleration of technology, probably 10 years worth of advancements in one year. What we have, what has long been predicted about how we're going to do business. And I think the biggest change in us is the immediacy. And I ask audiences, has anybody noticed that your customers or clients are a little more impatient, a little more demanding? Well, we all are because <laughs> yeah. we're used to getting what we want. I can get instant. I can instantly look and see where my kids are because I track their phones. We can, we can, I can see updates on their, uh, uh, on their on their on scores. If somebody's at my front door, the ring video doorbell, and so it's changed us. And so we have to recognize that we have a level of imp- empathy of where whatever where our customers are coming from. Is that yeah, they are unreasonable, but so are we. We want what we want when we want it, and those who sure. can deliver it are going to have a leg up on the competition. Uh, we can get things delivered to our house. I have my groceries delivered. It's awesome. I wouldn't have thought about it. So just what is sort of a parting thing? I think it's really important for how can we help our customers bypass the garbage? How can we help them get to a person what they want, their their materials delivered or shipped as fast as we can? Um, there's, there's constraints, there's supply chain issues and everything else. But once again, let me tell you what I can do. Uh, solve yeah. a lot of those things. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. Uh, I want to thank you so much, David. Our time is indeed about up. Thank you. Uh, This is Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This has been episode number 82. Uh, My guest, David Averin, he is the author of numerous books, including Why Customers Leave and How to Win Them Back, as well as now his, his new book, The Morning Huddle. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can check out other episodes by going to my company's website, at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com, or you can go to the New Books Network, type in Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, and you'll find the other shows that I've had in the past year and change there. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, I couldn't resist one from, of all people, Henry the Fonz Winkler from Happy Days, who said, assumptions are the termites of relationships. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. (laughs) 